Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the OSHA 3030 with Manish Rath. I'm Manish Rath here at Keller and Heckman. And uh, for those of you who are participating for the first time, we uh, pr provide this program complimentary to clients and friends of the firm every 30 days, and we cover a developmental area of OSHA law in about 30 minutes. And we've been doing this for over five years uh, and covered a, a host of topics with varying members of Keller and Heckman's OSHA team. I'm joined today by Javane Nakumaram. Javane, welcome. Thank you, Manish. Glad to be here. In the past, as you know, Javane, we've been joined by David Cervati, Larry Halper, and others from our OSHA team. And uh, I think the different perspectives we've gotten from the team members has been great. Today, Javane, we have a, a new decision of huge importance. It's OSHA's silica rule and the D.C. Circuit opinion uh, that just came out on that rule. So with that said, here's the phone number for those of you dialing in, 800-768-2983 in order to get the sound. And uh, as I had said before, I am Manish Rath. I'm joined by Chavane Nakumaram. The past five years programs, as I would referred to earlier, they are all found on our website at khlaw.com, OSHA 3030. That's khlaw.com slash OSHA 3030. And the slides and the sound, the basically the whole webinar, can be downloaded and replayed on well over 60 topics. I think we're up to 65 different episodes now uh, that are libraried on our website. So go through them, take a look. Many of them are still of critical importance uh, to employers as they seek to find the best way to bring their organizations into compliance. Uh, with that said, let me give you a brief overview of what we're going to talk about today in light of the District of Columbia Circuit Court's decision on OSHA's new silica rule. I think the first thing we ought to do is talk about the silica rule, give you a basic understanding of the rule, and then talk about the kinds of challenges that were raised by petitioners uh, challenging the rule, and then what the D.C. Circuit Court said in ruling on those challenges. And finally, Javane, as you know, uh, as we always strive to, we will wrap it up with a real brief discussion of the practical action items that we think employers should consider, what employers should do. So with that said, uh, let's get into it. Let me give you a real brief uh, overview of the silica rule and uh, what, what the new rule stands for. I mean, to begin with, I think it's important to talk about silica generally. This is a material that is extremely prevalent in the environment. It's prevalent in sand, stone, it's found in rock, it's found uh, in concrete, and other kinds of, uh, of aggregate, aggregate or uh, binding materials. It's found in brick, uh, mortars. It's found in coatings, such as paints and fillers. And uh, it's in a host of other materials as well. It's, it's uh, co-located with metals. It's co-located with other substances that are mined. And, uh, and I think that... Uh, it's safe to say that anything that comes, any finished products that come from that, like ceramics, uh, will also have silica as well. That's right, Manish. The, it seems as if silica is found in almost anything, anything that comes from the Earth's crust. And so 
as OSHA indicated, over 675,000 workplaces or would be affected by the silica rule, and it's considered one of the most prevalent chronic occupational diseases in the world. So the scope of this final rule alone is absolutely um, it, it's very broad and encompasses lots of different industries. Yeah, it may be the largest health standard in a, a couple of decades. Uh, in addition to the industries I just mentioned, it's also found in glass. I mentioned pot, uh, ceramics, so that would include pottery, artificial stone, jewelry uh, as well, uh, metals of all kinds. Uh, uh, you'll find silica co-located with them, and so in uh, the foundries industry as well, where both sand as well as metals are, are prevalent. Uh, and so... So you'll find it in those kinds of products as well as in all of the um, advanced products further down the stream, like automotive, uh, aerospace, uh, electronics, certainly. Uh, so it's a huge, huge portion of the American economy that's affected by this rule. Uh, in, in addition, it's also maybe the largest health standard by another metric. Uh, it's, it's considered to be uh, a material that can give rise potentially to uh, a disease known as silicosis. And silicosis is thought to be the most prevalent chronic occupational disease in the world. Uh, silicosis is an interesting disease because it is almost entirely uh, occupational in origin. The kinds of exposures necessary to lead to silicosis are not the kinds of exposures that you see in non-occupational uh, exposures to silica. And so it is almost entirely an occupational disease by nature. And as occupational diseases go, certainly silicosis is thought to be the largest or the most uh, prevalent uh, by population. So, so I think that we've, we've satisfied the basic premise that this standard is a huge impact across a large number of industries. With that said, Javanay, I think it's also safe to say that the elements of the rule are fairly far-reaching. Uh, it has a lot of the basic elements that you'll see in health standards. Uh, such as employee training, uh, record keeping, housekeeping, uh, a written, uh, the requirements for an employer to develop a written exposure control plan. But uh, in addition, it has uh, a very low permissible exposure level of 50 micrograms per cubic meter uh, over an eight-hour time-weighted average. So, and, and I point out the eight-hour time-weighted average because I think that's important. A lot of times uh, employers will sample for a shorter period. Uh, you know, the time it takes to set up and take down the test uh, would be greater than eight, and so in order to get an eight-hour employee to conduct the sampling, you might do a, a test that's shorter, but as long as the exposure is representative, you can extrapolate. So on an eight-hour time-weighted average, if you're looking at uh, 50 micrograms per cubic meter, which is extremely small, then the, you would have uh, ex uh, anything higher than that would have exceeded the permissible exposure level. So with that said, uh, that triggers a host of requirements, the most uh, involved being engineering controls and then work practice controls, uh, and uh, whether or not those are uh, working, if you're still at or above the permissible exposure limit, then you would have to additionally implement respiratory protection. Uh, that, that is the general industry standard. Now, to give you some sense of scope of what this new level looks like, it's a revision of an existing permissible exposure limit. Uh, in general industry, the limit was 100 micrograms per cubic meter uh, over an eight-hour 
time-weighted average. And in the construction sector, the, the limit was uh, 250 micrograms per cubic meter over an eight-hour uh, time-weighted average. And so it's gone from 100 and 250 micrograms per cubic meter down to 50. Uh, with that said, if that permissible exposure limit is triggered, then the requirements for engineering controls and, and work practices is triggered. Uh, in construction, the agency did something a little bit different. They created a table called Table 1, and it itemizes a host of specific activities where if your activity is listed, then you follow that row across the chart to uh, a column where OSHA has identified an acceptable uh, abatement practice. And if the employer follows that uh, standard abatement practice, then the employer will not be required to engage in ongoing exposure monitoring. And so the Pell, although it isn't uh, suspended, uh, certainly the requirements to measure for exceeding the Pell is no longer triggered if you are fully in compliance with Table 1 and all of your activities are Table 1 activities. But of course, exposure monitoring would not be suspended as a requirement if some of your activities are still off of Table 1 and some of them are on Table 1, simply because you're complying with Table 1 for those activities. Javanet, did I say that clearly for everyone? Uh, you did, Manish. So it's very important for employers in the construction industry to understand the specific tasks that are specified in Table 1 so they know if they can take advantage of, this, um, of the different work practices and control methods specified in the table so then they would not have to go through ongoing exposure monitoring. We've had questions from time to time, Javane, from uh, clients who would call in and say, well, look, this is the activity we're engaged in. It's not really specifically on Table 1, but you can uh, agree with me that it looks a lot like the Table 1 activities. And I'll say, uh, after looking into this, we came to the conclusion that although it looks like Table 1 activities, if it's not specifically enumerated, then it is not a Table 1 activity, and you don't get the benefit of the Table 1 remediations as a shortcut to the other requirements like exposure monitoring. So that's an important one to keep in mind. A lot of the Table 1 controls are things like water-assisted uh, wet saws or water-assisted uh, other devices, it, the purpose of which is to tamp down the, the um, amount of dust that gets kicked up by an activity that might be respirable silica-containing dust. Uh, others are maybe uh, HEPA vacuum assisted, but uh, water assisted controls predominate the list of type, Table 1 type controls. So that gives you an idea of an overview of the silica rule. As many of you who are longstanding members of the OSHA 3030 community are well aware, we covered the silica rule itself in a little bit more uh, detail. Uh, when it was first issued, and I, I do encourage you, for those of you who didn't catch it, to go back to khlaw.com slash OSHA 3030 and try and find that program because uh, it might give you additional information. With that said, we wanted to give you an overview here in order to launch from that starting point into the judicial challenge that ensued right after the final rule was published. So, so that is uh, an overview of the rule. 
So following the release of the rule, several, several industries brought petitions for review to challenge the rule, as well as uh, a variety of unions also brought their own challenges to the silica rule. So many of the, the cases were consolidated into the D.C. Circuit, and the case was argued just in September of last year, and uh, the decision came out just about a month ago uh, from the D.C. Circuit. So as Manish has discussed, this is a very seminal case that, um, that responds to a number of industry and union challenges on the rule. So let's dive in to uh, what the challenges were to the rule. Well, to start with, I think, Jovene, it might make sense to, to give everyone an understanding of the, the standard by which OSHA is supposed to implement health standards. Health standards come out uh, in the OSHA Act. The Act, Congress empowered the agency to develop health standards, and that comes out under Section 655 of the OSHA Act. And essentially it says to the agency, Congress says to the agency, if you're going to develop a standard dealing with toxic materials, uh, then you must, in developing that standard, ensure that the standard is premised on the best available evidence that no employee will suffer material uh, impairment of health as a consequence of the standard, that the standard itself and the requirements are premised on the best available evidence. The other thing that I think is uh, critical uh, coming out of the Act, Congress said to the agency, when you develop standards, the determinations you make have to be, that support the standard, have to be based on uh, substantial evidence in the record when taking the record as a whole. I think that part often gets uh, a little bit less valued than the first part that I described. It's not enough that the agency premises rulemaking on the best available evidence, but it has to be supported by substantial evidence in the record when the record is taken as a whole. In other words, all of the evidence has to be considered that's available. and. Uh, the agency has to make uh, determinations according to the entire record. With that said, uh, I, I think it's also important to point out maybe one of the most important court decisions in the history of rulemaking for OSHA, and that's the benzene standard. When we talk about uh, the kinds of things that OSHA has to look at when they look at substantial evidence, and they look at what risks are presented, uh, the benzene standard, I think, gives us good insight into that subject as well. So we need, at some point during this 30 minutes together, Javane, we need to talk about not only the act and its precepts, but also how the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court, has opined on what that means in the benzene decision. So let, with that said, let's, let's keep going. So industry brought a number of different challenges to the silica rule, but a general theme of the challenges was that OSHA did not support many of its findings based on substantial evidence, which just uh, as Manish discussed, is required under the OSH Act. So first of all, uh, industry challenged OSHA's significant risk findings based on a lack of substantial evidence. So there were several pieces that industry uh, challenged with relation to OSHA's decisions, for example, OSHA's decision to use a no-threshold exposure response model in its risk assessment for silicosis, OSHA's decision to not account for dose rate effect in its model, uh, OSHA's, in particular, they, they spent a lot of time challenging OSHA's decision that there is a uh, significant risk of four discrete adverse health effects that are 
caused by exposure to respirable crystal and silica. And these four adverse health effects are, uh, which Manish mentioned uh, a few of them already, silicosis morbidity, lung cancer mortality, renal disease, and silicosis and other non-malignant respiratory disease mortality. Uh, and then finally, industry uh, questioned why the brick industry was included in the final, in the scope of the final rule, because they believed that there was no uh, evidence of, uh, of significant risk of any of these adverse health effects. And then uh, going into so, Jovenet, we oh. talked about uh, earlier, I promised that we'd have to talk about the U.S. Supreme Court case, right. ben, the benzene decision. And when, you, when you're describing the significant risk challenge, I think that that is a, a good point at which to give a brief overview of one of the most important parts of the benzene decision. In that decision, the Supreme Court said, look, uh, if you're going to promulgate a standard, then you, you've done, you have to have done so based on a conclusion that exposure here to silica would be based on uh, a significant risk of a material impairment to health. And that the requirements that you're imposing in that rule are going to substantially lower that risk. And that was what the Supreme Court said to the agency. It said, look, if you're going to develop a rule, then there has to be a finding that there's a significant risk of, of uh, material impairments to health and that the requirements you're drafting into the rule will substantially lower that risk. And I think that that is now imbued as a part of the agency's requirements when developing a health standard. That's right. And so, again, looking at the significant risks in, uh, that OSHA has determined in this case, the, the industry challenged these findings, saying that no substantial evidence supported any of these findings. Um, industry also challenged uh, the technologic, uh, technological feasibility and economic feasibility findings of OSHA. Um, again, uh, as Manish mentioned, uh, based on the standards of review, uh, OSHA is tasked with ensuring to the extent feasible on the basis of best, best available evidence that no employee will suffer material impairment. So again, there's a feasibility aspect to the standard setting requirements in the OSHA Act. And so courts have interpreted feasibility, feasibility to mean both technological and economic feasibility. So in this legal challenge, industry said that there was no substantial evidence to support uh, OSHA's findings that the rule was both technologically and economically feasible for four different industries. Uh, also, industry challenged two different ancillary provisions of the final rule. First, uh, the uh, provision that OSHA finalized that employees are permitted to keep medical exam results confidential from their employers, uh, and uh, also OSHA's prohibition on employers from using dry cleaning methods uh, instead of, uh, unless doing so is infeasible. Essentially, industry was concerned that this is a complete prohibition on a covered method, and so they had a number of concerns with these provisions uh, in that there was uh, they argued that there was no substantial evidence to support them. Let me be, uh, also give some background, Javanay. So there's listening in the traditional medical surveillance program of prior standards, the employer would direct the employee to undergo a medical exam. The healthcare provider would provide the information directly to the employer. And on the basis of that information, the employer was now better informed on how to make decisions to improve the uh, risk profile for employees. 
to improve the health and safety environment in the workplace uh, on the basis of the data that was coming back from these medical exams. This rule, for the first time, the agency said, no, we're going to do something different. Here the employee will go to a healthcare provider, will undertake a medical exam to determine uh, any number of health adverse uh, health effects that might arguably be caused by exposure to silica, and the healthcare provider will provide the data back to the employee, him or herself. On the basis of that data, the employee can make a decision as to whether or not uh, medical removal from that specific task is implicated or, or not, and whether or not uh, removing himself or herself from that organization entirely or that work site entirely is indicated by the data. Uh, but that is now a decision that the agency, for the first time in over 40 years, believes that the employee should be making, and therefore the data upon which the employee makes that decision should be confidential to the employee. That's right, Manish. This is a very uh, different policy change from OSHA. Uh, essentially, industry was concerned that this unreasonably risks withholding information that an employer needs to ensure workplace safety. With that said, there were a couple more procedural uh, challenges that industry raised. One of them, and these are procedural strictly, one of them was, look, on the last day before we were supposed to submit comments, OSHA released a lot more additional data and in addition, they, they did rely on some data uh, or estimates from a third-party group called ERG, uh, and they didn't present the underlying uh, assumptions that were made when ERG, that ERG made when it was developing this data. Uh, so with that said, I think that the most interesting parts of the uh, challenge and the course decision were not those procedural elements, but the significant risk. Uh, or the risk assessment uh, issues that the Javana you discussed earlier. Uh, the union filed a challenge as well. The, the unions filed their own petitions for review because they had their own challenges to the rule as well. So they argued that there were two parts of the final rule that were not supported with substantial evidence. Um, and so that this was so their challenges were limited to these issues. First, uh, the unions were challenging OSHA's decision to not include medical removal protection in the standard. Uh, they were concerned that uh, the OSHA's reasoning for not including these protections were inadequate and OSHA engaged in unreasoned decision making. And then also the unions challenged OSHA's decision to include medical surveillance uh, requirements for the construction industry only if the employee has to wear a respirator for 30 days for one employer in one year period. That's what the final rule says. If it's, if it's the construction segment, then the employer must direct the employee into a medical surveillance program if they have been required to in, uh, use respirators for 30 days or more in that year. Right. Unions were concerned that employee exposures could still occur uh, in shorter amounts of time, or what if an employee splits the use of a respirator across multiple employers? So they, they were concerned about employee safety, uh, that they may fall into a gap here um, on, that this final rule didn't protect them from. So what did the D.C. Circuit say when they heard all of these arguments from both sides? Essentially, the uh, looking, well, let's take a look first at industry's challenges. Uh, the court essentially said that OSHA did support its findings with substantial evidence. The court defended 
uh, OSHA's position and explain that OSHA adequately justified its reasonings? Yeah, I think it's safe to say, Javanay, that the court struck down every one of industry's arguments. That's they didn't right. accept a single one. They did, they did not. Uh, the, they, they determined that under the substantial evidence standard, OSHA met its burden for all of industry's challenges. Right. And the, as you say, the, the basis on which the, agency, the court made that decision was to say, look, when it comes to finding significant risk, for example, the agency nearly, merely needs to rely on substantial evidence. And they did rely on certain evidence. They relied on certain evidence to come to the conclusion that silica exposure, uh, respirable silica exposure leads to the varying uh, endpoints that OSHA had pointed to. Uh, it's interesting. They, they go through the numbers and they say, look, even if you challenge OSHA's use of a no threshold effect model, OSHA, on the face of the preamble, didn't say that it needed to employ a no threshold effect model. They said, whatever the threshold is, it's clearly below the Pell that we're proposing. So we can use an assumption of no threshold for the purpose of supporting this Pell. That, the court decided, left open the question of whether or not OSHA had actually used a no threshold effect model or whether it was improper to do so. The court noted that a no threshold effect model had been upheld by that same court in an earlier decision involving ethylene oxide. And it said basically, look, not only have we upheld the concept generically of a no threshold effect for some substances, but here OSHA has said that they don't need to get to the point where they think that there's a no threshold uh, effect. They, they've set the threshold proposed to be 50 micrograms per cubic meter, and they've said, we think that the, there's a significant risk well below that figure for some of the endpoints, like cancer and silicosis. The court recognized that OSHA was a little bit on weaker evidentiary grounds when trying to justify that a significant risk existed for renal disease. But they said, look, as long as they've gotten to the point where they can demonstrate a significant risk on any health endpoint, and they did with cancer and silicosis, then they don't need to be on solid footing with substantial evidence on all of the health endpoints that they allege would ensue from exposure to respirable silica. So the court was satisfied that the threshold for the agency, uh, the one, that of substantial evidence, is a very low one, and that indeed the, court, the agency had met a low threshold in presenting evidence that, uh, that there's a significant risk associated with respirable silica exposure. Why, by the way, I should take a little detour here for all of you to explain why I am always or almost always modifying the word silica with respirable silica. Respirable silica is a size particle that is much, much smaller than most particles of silica. It's about a hundredth the size of, of what, a grain of sand, and uh, in order for it to be respirable. And it is specifically in part because of the size that small size, that it has the potential for adverse health effects. And that is because it's small enough to get through your natural filtration system and uh, uh, deeper into lung tissue where it can reside uh, long term and damage, physically damage the, uh, the tissue around it. So it's respirable silica that's regulated here. 
Uh, with that said, uh, OSHA had, had presented evidence of the health effect that, that uh, the relationship between uh, exposure to respirable silica and the health endpoints that it urges are a significant risk. So the, with regard to the, um, the other industry challenges, the, uh, essentially the court said the same thing with regard to the ancillary provisions that uh, OSHA did support its decision with substantial evidence. OSHA, uh, with regard to the medical surveillance for the construction industry, um, so, so OSHA, uh, so the court held that OSHA explained its logic and policies underlying its choice, and it used reasonable judgment. So although industry presented different uh, different alternatives and different critiques of OSHA's rationale, the only burden that OSHA had to meet was that it explained its reasoning and its policies, and it explained why it chose one approach over another. Similar well, yeah, and that's right, Javanet. You're right about that. And I thought that that was an interesting section of the opinion, and I think it's important for everyone to take note of because whereas they begin the discussion about medical surveillance with the legal precept that the agency does have to present substantial evidence in justification of that uh, specific requirement, they begin to analyze OSHA's justification for the medical surveillance uh, requirement as it was constructed uh, by an entirely different analysis than substantial evidence, as you say, the court simply says, ah, well, look, the agency offered good reasons for its new approach, right. and that seems to satisfy the District of Columbia Circuit Court, as if the legal standard for an agency in rulemaking was the agency must offer good reasons. So when the court says, quote, OSHA has offered good reasons for this new approach, then they, they've accepted that that's all an agency needs to do. And that was the total sum, from anything I could tell, that was the total sum of the court's analysis was, well, we recognize that the agency has departed from its old method for uh, medical surveillance, but it's offered good reasons for doing so, uh, not that it's offered substantial evidence, and then the court pointed to that evidence. It didn't do that. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so I am concerned that when a court uh, is so willing to accept that all an agency has to do is offer a good reason for its rule that the court has, uh, I'd be worried that the court's lost sight of its role in the checks and balances between the executive branch as a regulatory body and the courts as a uh, entity that's supposed to ensure that the law is being applied and that the legal boundaries by which regulatory rulemaking are undertaken are being followed. And I don't think that I really am persuaded I saw that in this particular section of the, the opinion. And I, I do think that that's a reason for the regulated community to be concerned. I think that's a, that's a very pointed critique that it's an important one that the court here for, in particular with regard to the medical surveillance issue, was highly deferential to the agency and its uh, new, new policy and its new direction it wanted to go and it didn't go through quite the substantial evidence uh, analysis as it had the other provisions. So how did the court deal with technological and economic feasibility, Javanay? Well, in the feasibility analysis, once again, the court uh, supported OSHA's findings. And in particular, uh, it's, it's mostly because when you look at what OSHA has to demonstrate with regards to feasibility, it's a, it's a hefty burden or it's a hefty hurdle that industry was going to have to 
overcome in order to demonstrate this. So, so uh, with feasibility in terms of technological feasibility, you have to show that um, the standard is feasible for the typical firm in most operations uh, most of the time. And so it's not enough for an industry uh, you know, petitioner to say it's going to uh, it's going to be burdensome and expensive for my industry, or one or two particular industries won't be able to comply. You have to show that um, the typical firm in most operations, not all operations, most operations most of the time can't comply with this. And so, going through the evidence, the court determined that. Um, OCHA did satisfy its requirement by showing that uh, the typical, you know, regulated employer uh, could comply with the standard, despite the fact that some industries could not be able to. The foundries was a, a specific industry that they discussed in the court opinion, and they said, look, if you look at the fact, the, the, the argument made by industry that the fact that all industries can't meet the standard uh, with all tasks and all of the time, that is beside the point. Uh, so long as the typical operation at the typical foundry or uh, some foundries are able to comply with the Pell, for example, uh, then, then that would suffice to demonstrate technical feasibility, technological feasibility. Uh, and the other point that they made that's been made in prior opinions is the idea that the agency can implement a requirement that forces the development of technology uh, of technological feasibility. It does not have to be an assessment of technological feasibility in the current state of art, uh, but something that is reasonably practical to achieve uh, through pushing new technology. Uh, they handled the economic feasibility argument with, I think, a similar uh, sort of approach. Uh, as you'd say, I think that they were very clearly uh, deferring to the low bar by which agencies have to promulgate rules. Uh, even with regard to economic feasibility? So the uh, all OSHA has to show for economic feasibility is that the rule doesn't threaten massive dislocation to or imperil the existence of an industry. So once again, industry had quite a, a high burden to meet to show that the rule would massively dislocate or imperil the existence of an entire industry versus just some industries, or it's just going to be a high cost. Or some companies. The court said it's not a big deal to uh, the agency or the court if some companies within the industry, uh, their survival will be threatened by a new rule. It's only if the entire industry uh, is threatened or the, entire, the existence of the entire industry is threatened by the new rule that the question of economic feasibility should even be examined further. But the court seems to accept and the agency urged that if a new rule compromises the survivability of some companies within industry, that that's an acceptable loss and that that's a given. OSHA, in its preamble to the Silica Rule, opined that acknowledging there's no hard and fast rule for where to draw the line, they suggested that if the compliance costs as the agency estimates them, are less than 1% of revenue or 10% of uh, profit, then it would be economically presumed feasible to comply with the rule. And if the costs exceed those levels, then it might not be uh, economically infeasible even then. It merely serves as a trigger for the agency to examine the question further. 
But all of these will be premised on what the agency believes are its estimated costs. Uh, I've participated in the rulemaking process for most of the major OSHA rules to come out in the past 20 years. And I, I believe that there is a consistent theme to their economic analysis, and that's that they uh, underestimate the cost of compliance by significant measure, uh, overlooking a great deal of what goes into compliance costs. And so now you're taking significantly underestimated estimated costs and saying, well, if that's even as much as 10% of profit, <clears throat> then that might not uh, challenge the question of economic feasibility. Uh, I think the other concern I have is that there might be 10 rules promulgated that each may require 10% of profit to uh, comply with. And OSHA's never examined the cumulative effect of what it takes to comply with 10 rules, each of which take 10% of your profit. That's a good point. Yeah, that doesn't seem striking me as fair. Oh, no. <laughs> well, well, with that said, that that's the uh, starting presumption that they make. Uh, oh, and how many rules are there, by the way? Dozens and dozens <laughs> and dozens. Absolutely. So, so with that said, that's how they dealt with the industry challenges. Javine, how did they deal with the union challenges? So with, uh, in response to the union's challenge on medical surveillance in the construction industry, uh, the, the courts decided that OSHA did support its decision with substantial evidence. And the court noted that the union failed to present evidence that a stricter rule would significantly benefit worker health. Uh, worker health. And so uh, the agency properly defended its position. But with regard to medical removal protection, OSHA, uh, the court decided that OSHA failed to adequately explain its decision and its reasonings for not including this, and so they remanded that aspect of the standard to, or this question, to the agency for consideration. So let's talk about what we think employers should do. We're a little bit over time, but you know, this is a 60-page decision, and I know you and I both struggled for how are we going to do this in 30 <laughs> minutes. There's a uh, lot in here. <laughs> that's right. Uh, I think the first thing that I can say, Javine, uh, employers need to start preparing to comply with the standard in time to meet the compliance dates, which, Javine, will you talk about next? Yes. Uh, I think that employers should identify which of their activities fit uh, Table 1 activities uh, in construction and which don't. First, the first question to ask as a threshold question is what activities or what uh, what is the employer doing that would fit under con the construction standards in the first place? and which ones are general industry, and it's not always clear-cut. Even general industry employers engage in activities that look like they would be regulated under the construction standard. So then I think if you're, you find certain tasks that are construction tasks to identify Table 1 activities. Uh, then i, I got to say, in the context of this particular rule, we know, as you just said, Javine, that the medical removal protection requirement is going to go back to the agency for additional rulemaking. OSHA has to justify its current scheme, and in that process, that rule may change. And so it's really critical for employers to prepare comments and participate fully in that rulemaking. And by fully, I mean bringing evidence and uh, the kinds of facts that will help persuade the agency. Uh, the only other thing I'd say is for future rulemaking, it's important to try and address uh, significant risk, not just by presenting as much evidence as you can, because OSHA, in promulgating a health standard, need only rely on substantial evidence. It doesn't have to like your evidence, and it doesn't have to solve a scientific dispute. That's clear from this opinion from the court. 
But it does mean that you have to do your best not only to present your evidence, but to explain clearly why other studies may be flawed if they are indeed flawed and thus don't constitute suitable evidence at all. Uh, and the other thing I'd say is uh, when challenging future rules, uh, and perhaps we can hope that the other cor circuit courts will have an opportunity to sit in on this question because the D.C. Circuit has opined that it's okay with OSHA's medical privacy rule as it currently stands in the Silica rule. But when challenging other rules uh, in other, perhaps other circuits, I think it's important to address the limited scope of the uh, Occupational Safety and Health Administration's statutory authority, which does not permit the agency to consider the employee's concerns about their employability. Health and safety is the mandate that Congress gave the agency. Questions of employability uh, and, and rights to retain employment belong with other agencies, perhaps the National Labor Relations Board, I don't know. But I will say that this particular argument that the agency advanced was one that is well outside of its statutory mandate, and that argument has to be made as decisively as possible uh, before a sympathetic court who's willing to s serve in its role as a judiciary that holds the rulemaking process of regulatory agencies in check as originally conceived by the Division of Powers. So that's what I think employers should do. All of that leading into the compliance dates coming up under this rule. Javane? Yes. Uh, so employers, by now, you all probably know what the compliance dates are since many are coming up this year. But just as a reminder, there are several uh, triggered uh, compliance dates that are going to begin in 2018. So for general industry and maritime, by June 23, 2018, uh, you all must comply with the standard except for the action level trigger for medical surveillance. And then starting June 23, 2018, employers have to offer medical exams to employees exposed above the Pell for 30 days or more a year. And then uh, starting June 23, 2020, employers must offer medical exams to employees exposed at or above the action level for 30 or more days a year. Uh, and then going to the construction industry uh, by September, well, this, this deadline has already passed. So at starting uh, you know, by September 23, 2017, the construction industry has to comply with the standard except for the methods of sample analysis. But by June 23rd of this year, uh, you have to comply with the methods of sample analysis. That's today's OSHA 3030. I appreciate all of you sticking with us on a slightly longer than usual OSHA 3030. Today we'll call it the OSHA 3040. And, uh, and for future developments in OSHA law, you can follow us elsewhere in addition to this program on Twitter at Rathmanish, uh, on LinkedIn. I have a LinkedIn account as well as David Savati, Larry Halpern, Javani Nakumram. I know you have a LinkedIn account. Mm -hmm. And the Kellen Heckman Workplace Safety and Health Group has as well a LinkedIn page. Uh, this program and all of our programs for the past year or more have been republished as a podcast. Make sure you subscribe to, through your favorite podcast uh, media like iTunes to the OSHA 3030. And uh, something I've never asked before, but you can also like. So if you like and add comments on uh, iTunes, that helps the program reach more audience members, and the, the lifeblood of the OSHA 3030 is willing and interested participants in the community who want to advance safety and health compliance at their organizations. With that said, uh, our next program will come up uh, next 
February 21st, this February 21st, which is a Wednesday, also at 1 p.m., always on a Wednesday, always at 1. February 21st is our next one. When you get that invitation, the only tickets to admission we ask of you is when you get that invitation, forward it along to at least three people. If you've already done that, forward it on to three more within your organization and also at other organizations for in-house counsel and safety and health professionals responsible for compliance with safety and health at their companies. Uh, in addition to the OSHA 3030, Keller and Heckman has two sister programs, one involving TOSCA, the TOSCA 3030. Javane, I know you've spoken at that program. Right. Uh, and that the next TOSCA 3030 is February 14th, and the FIFRA 3030, uh, which will be on February 7th, all of them on Wednesdays, all of them at 1 p.m. Eastern time. For those of you who wish to tune into those, or if you have colleagues who are responsible for those areas of law, forward it along. Uh, and we are very grateful for your continued participation in the OSHA 3030 program. Until next month, thank you all for participating. Javane, thank you for joining me. Uh, we look forward to seeing you in about a month. And until then, stay safe.